0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings.
1: G'day dad, how are you going today? Good thanks Rowan and I think we'll be discussing today a really
0: interesting therapy topic. Absolutely, it's a fascinating topic that we've got planned for today. We've called today's episode Temporary to Transformative Types of Change. So dad, I, I know you've done a lot of research for this one, in fact I think maybe over a couple of decades, potentially. So, what are we going to be talking about in today's episode? Okay, well, these are simple enough ideas in some ways on the surface, but I think
1: they have a deeper significance. And certainly, this is something I have in the back of my mind when we look at therapy because therapy is basically about change. We're looking at change. At first, people are looking to feel better, less anxious or less depressed or more vital or to feel they're functioning better in certain ways. So basically, this is about change. But change can vary in terms of how quick is it? Well, certainly, how great is it? How major is the change? And how much is it lasting? How lasting is it? How long-lasting? So I think that means that there are different types of change where some will be quicker, more effective, longer lasting than others. And there are ways of considering this that actually I picked up from a book many years ago we've referred to called The Aquarian Conspiracy, which was about personal and social transformation and the nature of change that way. And so it's drawing on some themes that come up from there.
0: And I think it's a a very helpful topic for a lot of people, because obviously, as you said, a large part of psychology is about change, but it strikes me having looked at a little bit of this stuff that we'll be talking about today that it can really help you I suppose get a bit more bang for your buck in terms of if we're going to go to the effort of introducing change in our life in a particular way well we want that to be long lasting we want to get benefit from that more than just say the next couple of days where it really is maybe quite a conscious change that we're making at a time we want to basically make sure that that change lasts and all the effort that we're going to is is really worth it and long lasting. So I suppose what are the, the different types of change that we'll be talking about today? We might mention them now and then we'll unpack them a little bit more throughout the episode.
1: Okay, well, and just before describing that, I'll mention the different things we've talked about previously in terms of change too, like the importance of having a sense of agency, people having their own hopes, so they're providing their own direction that they want to go in themselves, people maybe encouraging themselves or reinforcing their efforts at change. There are a lot of different principles that relate to change, but when we talk about types of change, there are three main types of change we can think of. There's Incremental change, so that's change bit by bit. Then there's pendulum change, where people might seem to swing from one side to another. It might be, for example, people who are engaging in some kind of addiction and then they look to stop it overnight. Or it could be actually fad dieting if people are trying to change their eating habits. It's like a a sudden shift, but it could be like a pendulum. You wonder if it'll swing back later on. And then if we're looking at the deeper and more lasting change, we'll often talk about paradigm change. And paradigm change involves a genuine shift in someone's worldview. If you like, a bit of a change in philosophy, but certainly a change in perspective. We view things differently. And this gets back to a cognitive behavioural therapy principle. Where A lot of change we look at in CBT, cognitive behaviour therapy, is behaviour change, doing more of something or less of something else. But what we're really looking to change is our cognitions or our view of the world. So CBT therapy is actually aiming for some of this paradigm change, change our view of, for example how threatening a situation is or our competence in an area or how much we accept ourselves in certain ways. And so we might consider that paradigm change is a more favourable type of change, more profound in some ways, but sometimes it's worth accepting whatever change that we can manage at the time. Even change bit by bit can still be helpful.
0: Well, certainly, and let's start there in terms of that bit-by-bit change, because this idea of, say, incremental change, like most of the material that I've seen online, for example, seems to be about this incremental change idea. Like, for example, I know uh, the book Atomic Habits by James Clear is a very popular book, which deals with this idea of incremental change. So if we start with incremental change, you've obviously explained a little bit about what incremental change is, but I wonder maybe how you think of it in terms of maybe in therapy, how does the idea of incremental change come up? Okay, well, when it
1: boils down to it, a lot of therapy or the change that people seek is about increasing behaviours or decreasing behaviours. For example, just say people have an addiction they want to cut back on alcohol or marijuana or cigarettes, then it might be cutting back bit by bit. So people might be aiming to cut back at first from, for example, six standard drinks a day to four standard drinks a day as a start before they cut down further to safer alcohol use levels. Or if people are looking to cut back on cigarette smoking, gradually reducing the number of cigarettes, extending the period of time between having a cigarette for example. So that's an example of incremental change but there are other things we can think of as well. What about increasing our physical exercise? We know that's one of the best things that we can do to help reduce depression. But It doesn't mean that someone's going to suddenly be going to the gym four times a week for an hour, an hour and a half a time kind of thing. Nor do people necessarily need to do that. But starting off increasing people's exercise to some extent and then noticing some of the incremental benefits that come from that can help people keep going. But then there are other things that are maybe slightly more complicated than that, like what about procrastinating less? So people might... Use what I call nudge factors, nudge themselves towards starting up sooner. For example, they'll set up books on a desk a night before to get to their study quicker the next day, something like that. But the idea is to delay a little less, look to, if you like, get off the couch a bit quicker or whatever other form of procrastinating less we think of, and just bit by bit making change and noticing the benefits from that. And what are some other ones? people look to dial down their anxiety level or their arousal level. They might be practising mindfulness techniques or breathing techniques and bit by bit they're looking to reduce their average arousal level throughout the day, maybe be a bit more organised in their activity. And even with more complex things, like we've talked about complex trauma and dissociation where people have experienced past abuse, people can find it difficult to set boundaries in their life, including in their relationships. They might find it hard to say no. They might not be so discerning with how they're spending time with certain people. So if you're, like, looking to be a little more discerning, spending a little bit more time with certain people, a little bit less time with others, say no a little bit more often, just like when people have difficulty asserting themselves. Maybe... Sometimes making a request of other people or saying no a little bit more often. We can think of a whole range of difficulties people might seek help with, and it's shifting the behaviour a bit by bit in a certain direction. That's the nature of incremental change.
0: And this is something that we've spoken a little bit about on the podcast before. Like, for example, I think back to, I think it was episode 100, uh, the significance of taking the next step. Like, essentially, that was about, you know, the idea of basically doing anything that you can even if it's the smallest thing but just doing anything that's going to push you in a particular direction and help make a difference and I suppose one thing that that strikes me about incremental change is that it acknowledges how hard change can be at times and how you know if you're looking to make a particular change in your life or can be overwhelming at times to go oh you know i've got to change so many things about myself basically all at once whereas if we break it down a little bit more incrementally and look at things say over a longer period of time well it can be just so much more achievable to make particular changes without having to maybe fix everything all at once or or make large sweeping changes yes look i think that's a really important
1: observation change is difficult Well, quite frankly, if it wasn't, then people wouldn't be going and seeking psychological therapy. They'd just be changing their reactions or behaviour anyway. It is difficult, and that's why, as you say, we highlighted the importance or the benefit of just taking that next step. And that idea that came from our 100th episode, that came from Gus Polster, who is a therapist of about 80 years experience, a world leader in gestalt therapy. He was 100 years old when he gave that suggestion when he was interviewed about what were some of the main things he'd learned from eight decades as a therapist. And he said, sometimes it's just the person taking that next step, whatever it is. So we don't want to be dismissive of that. It doesn't mean it's trivial. Making a start, making a start in a positive direction, any start at all is worthwhile. So we'd actually invite listeners to think of, is there some area of your life, some behaviour, some activity, something you would like to do a little bit more of, a little bit less of, and think, is there something you've been doing a little bit differently recently? Or is there something that you might intend to do a little bit differently, a bit more of or less of, because that's significant. It's taking some action, some positive action, in a certain kind of direction. And the idea is little changes can lead to something big. That's more obvious if we look at, say, a sporting context, like, for example, people running a mile and they gradually got their times down until there was the miracle of a four-minute mile. Now it'll be a lot less than that. Or if people have been to a gym and they're using weights, over a period of time, incrementally, you see the increase in the weight that people are able to lift. And so incremental changes can really add up to something meaningful over a period of time but it's partly being persistent it's partly being patient it's about approaching things bit by bit because that type of change does tend to be somewhat slower it does call for ongoing persistence to build on it
0: and i suppose that whilst it might be a little bit slower that idea of incremental change there seems to be some benefits to it as opposed to say just going the whole hog in the opposite direction like that idea of little changes leading to something big, it it just strikes me that if we make too much of a change or or we shift things a little bit too much, the likelihood is we'll just flip back to the original way that we were doing things and, and, Essentially, we won't have made any change at all in the long run. It's almost like we have to bring ourselves along for the ride in some ways. And I suppose that takes us to our next type of change, which is pendulum change, which maybe is this idea of making a big marked shift for a little while and then potentially switching back to the original way that we were doing things.
1: Yes, you're in well into that. That's exactly it, the idea of pendulum change. It might be quick. There's this sudden change in behaviour, like someone goes on a fad diet. And they might be losing a few kilos in just over a week. And that might look magnificent. But how lasting is that going to be? Because if we're going to maintain changes in behaviour over time, as we said, often not easy to do, then often we need a shift in mindset and a shift in more than just our behaviour over a temporary period. So I think fad diets are a classic example of that pendulum change. People tend to swing back. I think it's Well, established by research that the vast majority of people who engage in diets will regain that weight after a period of time if they're just looking to take on some specific fad diet. But another example that I would use, because I used to see a bit of this in the anger management field, that's an area I specialised in many years ago. And the thing that you noticed is a number of people would be motivated to change their behaviour, say if A man had been physically aggressive at home. He's about to lose his relationship. His partner says, look, you're going to have to do something about this. I'm going to leave you. Now, that person might then say, oh, look, I'll change forever. Look, I'll never do that again. I won't ever lose my temper. I'll certainly not be physically aggressive again. And they might really say it like they mean that. But then sometimes also people would try and act almost like a bit like a puppy dog. They just try and do everything right and be nice and polite or whatever. So they actually hadn't really learnt by that stage extra ways of dealing with conflict. They hadn't really learnt about listening to the other person, empathising with them, picking up on how they felt, but also being able to put forward their own views or preferences or interests, engage in a bit of argy-bargy about that or some kind of discussion or compromise. These things take a while to learn someone going from being forceful and aggressive to just being like a puppy dog is not going to be convincing to anyone. There has to be something deeper that shifts in terms of their outlook, their attitudes, that side of things. So that again is a contrast between pendulum change and what we'll later on talk about with paradigm change, which is more a genuine shift in
0: underlying worldview. And it strikes me with pendulum change that And it strikes me with pendulum change that, you know, if you really think about it, almost like, say, on a a personality level, like, it oftentimes doesn't seem like someone's actually kind of changed in terms of, you know, the core of their being, for lack of a better term. Like, if, for example, someone recognises that they might have, you know, behaviours within themselves that they want to change... And then they just act in the completely opposite way. So oh, it's a little bit of a crude example in some ways. But I can think, for example, of, of people at university who you know, quite enjoyed a bit of a night out, quite enjoyed a bit of a party and, you know, tried to basically stop partying as much as they were. And so we'd just go, you know, I'm, I'm not coming out. I'm not drinking. I'm not doing any of that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's pretty hard to sort of, you know, hang out with them for a little while. But then so often they'd go back to just that party animal lifestyle and, I suppose, you know, you get a bit of a sense that it's not as if someone had made a complete change within themselves. They're almost acting the opposite of what would be more authentic to them in that circumstance, if that makes sense. It's not as if they really recognize, right, going forward, I can put all these habits in place to, you know, maybe avoid parting and maybe find a little extra joy in life in another place that I wouldn't have recognised beforehand, it's just literally, no, I know I can't do that, I'm going to abstain from that behaviour and almost do the opposite in some ways. Like It just it maybe lacks a bit of an authenticity as opposed to the incremental change or the paradigm change that we'll talk about later on. Yes,
1: and certainly we do have that, uh, I suppose, suspicion if people are suddenly stopping an addictive behaviour, whether it might just come back in some shape or form, and that's where, as a rule of thumb... We look for people to change their behaviour. Just say if it is an addictive behaviour or if people have acted aggressively and they're looking to curb that, we look for people to go for four to six months, certainly at least four months, to show that they've changed a habit. We've talked before about that nature of change. If people change a behaviour over a couple of weeks, well, they've just changed their behaviour. It might just be a pendulum change. They might just swing back. But if people have changed their behaviour for four months... Even if it started off with what looked like a pendulum change, that's a suggestion that they're changing a habit at a certain kind of level. It's got more promise to it. And if people change their behaviour over two years, then we would say that they're changing their personality. So even then, pendulum change is quick but it's a more unstable form of change. But if people can keep it going for a period of time, then it actually can lead to lasting change as well. So if that's what someone's looking to do at first, sometimes acting the opposite of how we might have acted before can be helpful to get it started. But... It's often not so sustainable, if you like. The incremental change, if we're keeping it going week by week, you can see the ongoing efforts that you're making. It's progress in a certain kind of direction. But if we are engaging in some shift in a behaviour, something like an addiction, we want to also get at some of our underlying perspectives that might have influenced that. For example, our desire to dampen painful emotions and find another way of dealing with that. Uh, We want to shift our views about our self-efficacy, our capacity to deal with that change under stress. So we're still able to maintain the change in behaviour even if you come under increased stresses as opposed to thinking, oh, I can use this new diet or I can change that addictive behaviour I can cut back, for example, smoking or whatever as long as I'm not stressed. But hey, if I'm stressed, I can't help it kind of thing. So it's a matter of changing the underlying beliefs as well that's what helps a sudden shift be more sustained
0: well it strikes me that if you haven't made that sort of underlying shift like if you haven't internalized in some ways the reasons to change well it- would be so conscious the whole time in terms of, oh, I have to act in this particular way that might be the opposite of you know <laughs> how I feel underneath or what my inclinations are to do in this situation. It just doesn't strike me as maybe the most meaningful, long-lasting type of change. But the thing about pendulum change is, at times, it can appear like paradigm change in some ways. In terms of even with paradigm change, there is potentially this marked shift in the way someone thinks or the way someone's attitude is towards a particular situation. But so often it comes with this underlying philosophy of why someone wants to change. Or it could be something as simple as, oh, I've got a few friends who've recently had kids, Dad. And you just get a real sense that, oh, geez, you know, we've come a long way since we used to be hanging out, you know, down the pub sort of thing. You just get a real sense that they've matured, you know, obviously change paradigm very quickly but they just have a a very new sense of or a new attitude, a new philosophy, a new reason to, I suppose, knuckle down with certain things. It's a good example of where people's priorities might shift, and they find
1: the satisfaction of putting some other being first, of putting their child first, for example. So that can lead to a real shift when circumstances change. But yes, paradigm change is where we get that more wholesale change in world view. And I'll describe some examples, and it usually involves some kind of epiphany. Some real shift like that. Now, I'll use an anger management example. A fellow who had lots of difficulties with losing his temper. Again, his relationship was very much at risk, very much under threat. He would have come into an anger management program under sufferance, not really wanting to come along, but feeling there's a bit of an ultimatum. He had to do something. Now, at a certain point, some way into this program, this person didn't just make incremental shifts. He was working on incremental shifts at first. He was looking to, again, manage his tone of voice and maybe develop relaxation techniques, breathe a little bit more in a situation so he wouldn't be as tense or quick to react. But the transformative thing was one time he found himself in an argument with another fellow where apparently their faces were about a foot apart this other person's so wild they're virtually spitting in his face and he said I could see the veins popping out on this guy's neck and he said hey that's me that's what I act like that's what kind of goose I look like when I'm losing my temper and getting really wild how ridiculous is that how ridiculous is this person acting in this situation well how ridiculous have I been acting at times when I've got worked up like that and it made a shift he shifted from that what we call an external locus of control oh I'm reacting this way because they made me they made me angry I'm angry with them I can't help it because they did this to me of course I'm angry and he shifted to more internal locus of control thinking wait a minute It's up to me how I respond to this provocation. I don't like what this person's doing, but I don't have to act like that. I don't have to get wild or raise my voice or massively increase my blood pressure or whatever. I'm in this situation. I'm trying to have a conversation with the person. But, hey, that's how I've acted at times in the past, so reactive as that. That was a lasting change for this fellow because he also had the image of the guy's face in his mind, but he was really allowing himself to recognise what wasn't working about his ways before and he also realised how he would have really been off-putting to people around him when he lost his temper so that was an example of someone who is at first working towards incremental shifts in curbing their anger but then there was a paradigm shift after that particular experience.
0: Well the thing I find so interesting about that example and about paradigm shifts in general is almost this idea of well, you can't go back to the way it was before, before you had this paradigm shift. Like the way that I almost think of it is like, you know, those photos or more pictures, not really a photo, but it might be, you know, at one angle you look at it and you go, oh, that's a duck in that photo. And then someone points out that actually, if you slightly change the perspective and maybe the orientation of the picture, it's actually a rabbit as well and once you get this sense of well it's a duck and it's a rabbit you kind of can't go back to seeing it just as you initially first perceived the picture to be in terms of just seeing it as a duck or a rabbit or whichever way you're inclined like once we've made that paradigm shift like once we've had that epiphany well that we're kind of stuck with that now like i imagine that guy There would have been that internal almost conflict between himself having recognised, well, when I'm angry, this is the way that I'm looking in this situation. You wouldn't be able to turn that off in terms of all the other situations where he would be feeling really angry. Well, now it's something that he's got to deal with in terms of now reconciling this new idea of, well, I don't want to come across as overly aggressive and looking like a bit of a buffoon with all my veins sticking out of my neck. It does seem to be one of those things that once we do have, whether it be an epiphany or or once we experience this paradigm shift, we can't go back to the way it was before.
1: Yes, and one way that comes across more commonly, but it's still a profound shift, is when people are dealing with anxiety reactions. It could be panic reactions, for example, or obsessive-compulsive anxiety-related reactions, but it could be even at times trauma reactions, but particularly with panic And anxiety and worry, often people think that if they experience the anxiety, it's like out of control. And people might see that when they experience anxiety, they're feeling vulnerable and they feel that vulnerability is a lack of control. Now what tends to happen is people are learning strategies to manage with anxiety, to deal with anxiety and go through it. They learn that by actually allowing themselves to accept the anxiety to not be anxious about the anxiety so much because it's being anxious about being anxious that's the real problem rather than the anxiety itself if people allow themselves to have those initial kind of feelings and find they can sit with them and then recognize that those feelings will tend to pass that's where vulnerability can become more of a strength or going through the experience can be a strength. It also comes up in other ways with vulnerability. If people allow themselves to feel their hurt or distress or pain in some kind of way, and they might express that to someone who cares about them and find a different way of communicating about that, they can relate that not to being a weakness or being out of control so much, but a kind of strength, even though it involves painful feelings. That's another transformation that often happens, and that's where... Much of therapy is actually encouraging people to go to their experience, including painful feelings and process them, because often there's information about that, about what people like or don't like or how people might respond in a situation or people's values or reactions in a situation might be telling them something about their priorities, something they want to shift or address, that kind of thing. So learning that vulnerability can be a strength rather than vulnerability being a weakness, that's another more common, actually, paradigm change that's going through our culture that comes up certainly in therapy settings.
0: Well, I think that's a good example because it shows in many ways how paradigm shifts can be brought on because look, it's probably not the easiest thing to do at times, which is why incremental change is such a popular method of change in some ways. But I know in, in previous episodes, we've spoken about this analogy of when someone goes through a crisis, how there can be some good that can come out of that in a particular way. So like if we have this analogy of say a traffic system and things are really congested, the population in the traffic system's grown, so all the roads are really busy and then people think to put in say a ring road or put in a thoroughfare and it strikes me that that idea of say putting in a ring road, well that is the paradigm change in many ways and is that I suppose your experience in terms of maybe crises bringing on some of these paradigm changes? Yes,
1: most certainly. It's where people going through a crisis often learn to add another string to their bow. Like at the time itself, people might be very overwhelmed and can't see a way through it, but they can add something to that. And actually I'll mention, this is a theme of a book that's just been released called Second Chances. And so 23 authors were invited to contribute to this book. I was one of them, and I talked about a period when I went through a severe depression, just over 30 years ago when I was in my early 30s. And I was admitted to hospital twice for this depression. So clearly it was a very crisis-ridden situation. I was off work for six months and I was very suicidal for a period of time. Now, it took me a little while to pick up the extent to which my reactions were influenced by perfectionism. Certainly the more immediate stress was to do with the hospital I was working in. There was very difficult... Hospital politics at the time, and I found that was very tough. You'd call it these days a degree of almost bullying, I suppose. But anyway, it was a very difficult situation. But again, as I was maybe sliding in my mood, I became more self-critical. And when I was admitted to hospital, I saw that as an utter failure. I'd been working as a senior psychologist at the hospital for a number of years, and I thought I shouldn't have been in that situation of being admitted to a psychiatric hospital myself now at first well I was admitted I had actually on medication I responded very quickly to that I picked up within about a week discharged from hospital went straight to a conference five-day conference I'm going there day after day dare I say that was a pendulum change I picked up because soon afterwards And again, partly there was enough stress in going to a conference several days a week when I wasn't concentrating so well. I'd recently been depressed. I was on this medication, but I hadn't changed some of the fundamental things. I became depressed again. Admitted to hospital, Very suicidal, feeling an utter failure. And after I was discharged the second time, I was still not very well, and I was just engaging in incremental change. I was a little bit trying to increase my activities in some ways. I was making a little bit of progress. We were living in the first house we owned, which happened to be in this street as well. And I remember painting a fence. Day by day, I'd paint a fence. There was a retired painter on the other side of the fence painting the neighbour's fence. And so that was like a little incremental change. I started to feel a little bit more effective. But then a paradigm change came with chair work. I saw an excellent therapist. This was months down the track of having been severely depressed. He did a chair work exercise where I separated out two parts of myself. He helped me do that. And I realised that there was one part of me feeling very helpless, like a helpless victim, and there was another part of me that was absolutely, massively, harshly critical. It's like I was beating myself with a branch. I actually had an image of beating myself with a branch. We did this two-chair exercise. I was going back and forth between the chairs, beating myself, thinking, no, no, I'm trying as hard as I can. The other chair, that's pathetic. You should be doing more back and forth, back and forth. But then the therapist led this to a little bit more of a resolution. And at the end of that session, he said, I think you have an imperfect solution. And something clicked in my mind with that. I wasn't quite sure what it meant, but I got out to the car uh, I put the key in the car lock. Keys had car locks in those days. Just at the very second I put the key in the lock, it unlocked something in my mind. I realised by the time I'd got from the therapy room to the car park in the car, i dropped the branch. I had this feeling of no longer beating myself. I could see some of the futility of it. So I just felt more freed up and I had this. Like an epiphany, I believed in my mind that I would recover and not get depressed again because there was just no point whipping myself with this branch. And following on from that, I thought of what he'd said to me about having an imperfect solution. I thought, hey, for a perfectionist who had to go through change, what more elegant solution than an imperfect one? If I could accept my pathetic recovery twice in hospital, months off work, my colleagues would have known I had been very depressed, I wasn't able to manage with my work role. If I could accept that about myself, that public, if you like, failure, and not being able to cope or manage as I thought I should have been able to manage, I thought I could accept anything. And then from then on, all I needed to do was accept a half-baked recovery. If it was a recovery of any type, however slow, however gradual, if I accepted that, that was my quest, that was my challenge. And then it became something that rather than some really pathetic way of recovering, I thought this is actually exactly what the doctor ordered, so to speak. They have that expression, where you fall, there your treasure lies. Well, my treasure was going to be in learning to accept imperfections even in a very public way, even when I'm not able to perform my roles as expected, that kind of thing, and I came to be able to do that. That was a gradual thing too. That unfolded over another six months, couple of years. It was another few months before I returned to work, but it was true. After that, I recovered, never depressed again in the 30-plus years since, and many of the most useful things I learned including accepting imperfections vulnerability that side of things many of the most useful things I learned came out of that kind of experience including learning that I did need to assert myself more in certain ways set limits in certain ways and find an environment more conducive to my creative work and learning that prompted me to go back to university complete a clinical master's degree and then start in private practice I sought out people and settings that were enhancing was very careful not to be involved in settings that I thought were undermining or negative or limiting.
0: Well, I think that's a, a really good example of how, say, a crisis can lead to in some ways, a positive paradigm change. I don't necessarily want to say that because it wouldn't have necessarily been positive or certainly not comfortable at the time to go through that. But as you described that there, it gives a lot more of a sense of having integrated maybe the thinking that you had before making that shift. And then it's not as if that you kind of ignored all of those things that were troubling you beforehand. It's just that you almost found something that kind of reconciled some of that conflict within yourself and I think it's a really good way to think about crises in some ways because I remember a time when I was really struggling and we went and saw a family friend who I know has been a real mentor to you and one of the main things that I remember him saying this was probably 10 years ago now but he said look this is a real opportunity to be going through this and I remember thinking at the time geez I feel a little bit taken aback in terms of geez it feels pretty shit at the moment I can't necessarily see too much positivity out of it. But actually, it was quite quick, like it probably was a real paradigm shift at the time of recognising, well, actually, there is maybe an opportunity to get something out of this whole experience, maybe in terms of, say, like a a philosophical benefit in some ways, and that strikes me as a real thing that can come with a, a paradigm shift, is it's a real philosophical benefit, and I know, obviously, crises are one thing to bring it on, and we We probably don't necessarily want to encourage people to go through a crisis because, as we say, it can be terrible and uncomfortable in a whole range of ways. So I wonder maybe some other ways of bringing about a paradigm change because I mentioned before maybe having kids, that seems like a really big one for a lot of people. But even just as we were thinking about this, like one that sort of came to mind is how often people go, for example, traveling in Europe and they say, I want to find myself, there's this real notion of, you know, finding yourself, whatever on earth that means. But I think if we really think about what actually does that mean, there's this real almost sudden sense of having an epiphany and being able to kind of integrate your personality in a way that you weren't able to before. I just find it very interesting that we even use that terminology when we talk about, you know, often maybe people in their, say, late teens or early 20s going overseas, obviously to have a very good time, but there maybe is this extra sense of, well, I, I want to get a paradigm shift out of it that will give me some sort of philosophical benefit going forward. So I suppose it's a, ra- a bit of a roundabout way of asking maybe what are some ways of inducing a paradigm shift that doesn't necessarily just have to relate to a personal crisis?
1: Okay, and as you say, it can be some kind of change as well, like people's perspective changing when, say, starting a family, but also some people might spend a fair bit of time out in nature that they haven't done for quite some time that leads them to be quite reflective for a period of time. People also can take up meditation. A number of people come to epiphanies after they practise some kind of discipline like that. For some people it might be maybe developing a martial art practice, and they realise that there's a philosophy behind that that shifts their view of ways of managing with things. So certainly there are a number of what Marilyn Ferguson in the Aquarian Conspiracy called psychotechnologies, including things like yoga, meditation, mountain climbing, well, people going on a pilgrimage, or people going on some great adventure, yet travelling will often do that for people as well. But look, I will come back to that notion that certainly in a psychology practice often what we see is this growth, this transformative growth that often does follow from crisis. And as they say, when we look at different characters, I think it might be a Chinese character for crisis is the same as the character for opportunity. Crisis equals opportunity. Also in Greek, the word crisis is very closely linked to the word to sift the concept to sift so again it's kind of like a different weighing up that allows us to see things in different ways but getting back to the crisis side of things because that's often how people will experience a shift it could even be from an ended relationship but the person looks back on that relationship and then they think of the things that they want to be different in a future relationship it can follow on from that but i will get back to that book second chances It describes how people have come through medical emergencies or how someone was lost in a snow-covered forest or other life-threatening situations or traumatic losses and how people transformed their experience after that and things that they learned from that. So we'll have a link to the Amazon site for the book Second Chances for this podcast episode because if people are interested in seeing examples of people having an epiphany following from crisis, that would be one way of tapping into it.
0: That's a yeah fascinating idea and it strikes me that I oh, don't want to sort of get too far into the weeds with this sort of stuff, Dad, but it relates in some ways maybe to the idea of, say, death and rebirth in Christianity in terms of we almost have to, say, let go of a part of ourselves in order to kind of be reborn in a new more, maybe more fully formed, maybe more integrated way. So look, fascinating ideas. But the other one that I wanted to ask you about is synchronicity, because I know that you've written about this in your book, The Positive Psychology of Synchronicity. So how does synchronicity and maybe experiencing meaningful coincidences, how can they bring on a paradigm shift? Okay,
1: well certainly it's a topic close to my heart and part of the reason is some of the most amazing stories that I've heard as a therapist involve synchronicity turning around people's fortunes. And I've heard several stories of people, like this is a dark theme, but people who were in the throes of a suicide attempt and something miraculously happened to turn that around. For example, someone who went to a very secluded place in a quarry. They were in the process of doing something which would end their life. And his son miraculously found him. Even if the son had a premonition that his father might have been at the quarry, he would not have known that part of the quarry. The son got there, broke into the car, Father fell out virtually unconscious just at that point of losing consciousness. And the father recognized from that event it was so unlikely, so uncanny how things happened at that time for his son to find him that he thought he was meant to live. And he made a dramatic change, but it wasn't just a pendulum change. He made all sorts of changes also in dealing with burnout and ways that he'd deal with challenging situations. He knew that he needed to speak up if he had a problem with certain things. But a lot of these changes unfolded quite naturally with that motivation. Another example, and we can have a link to this, is a, a video that I did on this, just a few-minute video telling a story of a client that I saw. We'll call him Eric again in the throes of a suicide attempt. And he was looking out a window, kneeling, and he saw across a tennis court outside the window, he saw a blackbird maybe 20 metres away. And just as he was about to take his life, the blackbird took off at full pelt, smashed into the window right in front of his face and fell down dead. And he thought, well, he actually had a pistol, took the pistol away from himself, moved it away and thought, I'm meant to live. That bird sacrificed itself for me. And with that notion of being meant to live, he booked himself into a rehabilitation program, successfully got off all alcohol and drugs over the next six months plus, stayed off them for months afterwards. Later on, returned to full-time work, got married, had a child. These changes followed on from that epiphany where he went from pain partly to do with past trauma, reactions with that, to this belief he's meant to live, and he puts so much positive energy into making the changes from there. But a couple of other examples have written about as well. There's one that's in a blog called A Healing Voice about a lady, a psychologist I met, who I mentioned about writing a book on synchronicity, and she sounded pretty sceptical. She thought, look, isn't that just all random chance?" I said, no, I think some things happen and it's compelling. They seem to go beyond chance. So later she told me a story she otherwise might not have told me about how she'd been severely depressed, grief-stricken, after her mother died. This was going on for well over a year, a year and a half, leading on to a couple of years staying depressed. She had a young infant. She used to go and feed her infant in a park, for different reasons I won't go into now, but they had this nice little ritual of going and she would feed her infant in this park. One day she heard this voice. She looked around, no one there. She heard the voice again and distinctly felt it was the voice of her mother speaking to her. She had an epiphany she felt this was an ongoing connection she had with her mother. She felt she was experiencing this goodwill from mother. And the way that she experienced it, she said, she felt that they still had a connection and her mother was still available to her, but in a different form. So no longer did she have such a pain of traumatic loss. She felt connected with her mother, but she didn't tell anybody about this because she thought they might think she's crazy, like hearing voices and that, until she saw a program on TV, I think from Oxford University, and it was talking about people who were bereaved. Sometimes their traumatic grief or their loss, they got over their grief through some connection some like spiritual connection with the deceased and she thought well that happened to me and then she started to tell other people tell her clients she told her husband she hadn't mentioned it to him before told other people she eventually told me and I wrote a story about that as well a healing voice because a number of people have experiences after traumatic loss and one other example we'll put a video up of is a fellow called Gary who lost a daughter 20 years earlier And he had what we might call like a visitation or visions in relation to his deceased daughter. And for different reasons, his experience of this reconnection with his daughter, he felt was giving him the message that, if you like, her spirit or soul was very accepting around the circumstances in which she had died as an infant. And he could then let go the sense of grief and self-punishment he'd had around the circumstances of her death as an infant. So each of these examples, we could say it's a kind of synchronicity. There was an uncanny timing involved. There was maybe a spiritual element involved or a transpersonal element involved. And I find that from people's stories as well, as well as my own experience those kind of experiences could be especially transformative. They tend to lead to paradigm change, including for me when I was a complete sceptic about those kind of things and I started experiencing so much synchronicity in my early 20s, I thought, my gosh, this is a thing. And ever since that was a, a paradigm change for me. No longer, dare I say, was the world flat. It seemed round no longer was the world devoid of this other dimension in life. I thought a spiritual or soul dimension in life was very real, just as real as the material world from that point on. And many people have that kind of experience and it's often a very positive experience for people's mental health.
0: Well, I think they're all great examples because they really get across this notion that with, say, paradigmatic change, there's a real change in belief which you used the term before, leading things to unfold naturally. And that basically seems to be the real crux of, of what we're talking about today in some ways in terms of, you know, we can have incremental change, which, you know, c- can build up over time. It can maybe be a little bit laborious in some ways. We can have pendulum change, which we might likely come back to the original way that we had of doing things. But then with paradigmatic change, it just is almost like a, a marked shift that just allows things to almost open up in front of us and just make it so much easier to proceed in a particular direction. And it strikes me that with some of those examples that you've spoken about there, like, they're such profound examples. And maybe with paradigmatic change, like, uh, the way that I almost see it is that can kind of be down one end of the spectrum. We can have this super profound Experience that just you know al- almost automatically leads us to change our beliefs, but it strikes me as well that say the other end of the spectrum can almost be with say something like incremental change after a period of time that can almost lead to a bit of a paradigm shift with just maybe a sense of feeling, geez, I feel good at the moment, or you know things are going really well in this direction, or like it, it probably doesn't have to be such a, a marked epiphany but obviously you know if those things happen then it'll make it so much easier for us but I just get a real sense that maybe it doesn't have to be the sort of you know be all and end all in terms of we're not having these kind of massive epiphanies well there are other avenues to paradigmatic change as well maybe just through a realization or, or a sense that things have really changed through changing our behavior incrementally very good point
1: and one of the main things I see in therapy is most of the time people are making incremental change, step by step, improving a situation. But over a period of time, especially if people are dealing with the common difficulties of anxiety or depression, it goes from the person thinking, I'm overwhelmed, I can't handle this, I'm not up to dealing with this. Gradually, people get more of a sense, oh, look, maybe I can at least do this, or I'm making progress here. And then it moves on to a point where the person thinks, I can manage with this, I am managing with this, and maybe even going on to, I am strong, I've learnt a lot, and recognising I've shown courage working through this. I've had to allow myself to be vulnerable, in, a, in and in a sense to accept a letting go of control or accepting not feeling that control so much, to gradually come back to feeling a little bit more effectiveness in dealing with things so there's this shift from being overwhelmed to a sense of managing and what the lasting learning that people can make so even though i'll mention i must admit as a therapist i love aspects for example of using emdr we've got a podcast on that or chair work Again, we've got a podcast on that. The different therapy techniques which help bring about this transformative change, for example, for trauma or different reactions. And, look, as a therapist, I've got to say, I just love that experience of witnessing someone making profound change and if it can be quicker and it seems so meaningful it's greater change it's long lasting that's very satisfying but there's something also very satisfying about seeing people genuinely looking to help themselves bit by bit in a positive direction there's something uplifting about that and as you say that can lead to paradigm change itself but it certainly can often lead to more than change enough, more than enough change for the person to largely achieve their initial goals. So, yeah, we don't have to get too picky about it, it should always be paradigm change, but whenever we realise that our underlying worldview has shifted, say from things like, oh, I can't handle failure or it's terrible to have disapproval or I can't stand this, I feel so bad, to, look, I accept myself as I am, It's worth me putting effort into these areas. I get benefits from that. I'm experiencing these negative consequences from this behaviour. If I'm honest with myself, if I'm aware of that, I can make some changes, keep on working at that, give myself credit for it. Very important to give oneself a pat on the back, give oneself credit for change. Often that overall approach leads to more than change enough and that's certainly very satisfying to witness as well.
0: Well, I imagine absolutely it is, and oh, that, in some ways, the way that you've described that, that leads us on to next week's episode quite neatly, Dad, because you mentioned a couple of therapy techniques that we use to maybe bring about change, and next week we'll be talking about the idea of learning to sting, so do you want to just, before we obviously jump into next week's episode, do you want to just give us a little bit of a, a brief sense of what that episode will be about, and maybe how it helps bring about change? Okay well one
1: thing is we can get sucked into the idea of there being positive feelings and negative feelings. Of course we want to feel good, we don't like feeling bad, but all our emotions have some kind of utility or message or help in pointing out if you like some guidance to us or values or whatever. Now the thing is if we slip up, how do we deal with things if we slip up? if we have a lapse, if we act in a way which is hurtful to other people, if we do something which we think was actually very unhelpful to ourselves or others, some kind of mistake or whatever, how do we deal with that? Now, it can be tempting to try and dial down the pain from that. And that's where I use the term sometimes learning how to sting means allowing ourselves to feel a bit bad for something that's happened or we haven't handled it well or we've acted a way that's hurt someone, it can be worthwhile allowing ourselves to sting and get that, if you like, feedback from that, well, the painful experience tells us, well, don't do that again. It guides us in our behaviour. I'd rather more act like this. But by the same token, a sting is temporary. It often doesn't last very long, yet it can be motivating. So the idea is not to get stuck into being too self-critical. We don't have to beat up on ourselves. And so the idea is not just avoiding the painful feeling, allowing for the painful feeling being a guide, but letting it be temporary. We don't have to beat ourselves up when we're not going in the direction that we want to.
0: Well, it strikes me that maybe if we dial down our level of pain to such a degree it's probably not conducive to experiencing the most epiphanies in a way. So I'll be good to chat with you next time, Dad, about maybe how to navigate some of that sort of stuff because, yeah, it strikes me that we probably don't want to go too far off the deep end of stinging as well. And so, yeah, there's a balance to be had there. But uh, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. We'll pop all the resources for today's episode up on the podcast page at psychspiels.com.au, and you mentioned a couple of the resources that we'll put up there, but I suppose one of the things that I've realised is how many of our previous podcast episodes have related to the different types of change in some ways. We've obviously had a few on incremental change, but looking at this idea of paradigmatic change, I know it's something that you've been very interested in for many years, and it is such an interesting topic. But if you're interested out there as a listener, then feel free to check out psychspiels.com.au and and, uh, head down to today's episode. We will put up, geez, what am I looking at here? Sort of 10 episodes that we've done, including a whole bunch on synchronicity that do relate to paradigmatic change. How you can bring about more of a paradigm change, because it it strikes me as maybe not necessarily the easiest thing to just click your fingers and make happen. So we'll put all those episodes up at psychspiels.com.au. Thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I've really enjoyed it. Good, thanks, Rowan. Look forward to the next time.